good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to Ink and Ash. My name is Sean Ennis, and with Veterans Day approaching here in the United States, I've got two veteran-related stories for you. One comes from an author we've heard from several times here, and the other is from a first-timer. But first, let's kick things off with a new review on Apple Podcasts. Wonderful by RJ Texas. Expressive voice, short and informative author introductions, and the stories selected are worth listening to again and again. Well, thank you so much, RJ Texas. Every review helps, and I very much appreciate your kind words. Now, as I've said, folks, I've got two stories for you today, and before we get to that, I want to run through a couple of quick notes. Now, I've mentioned the YouTube channel a couple of times here, but there are some changes coming to said channel. Starting here in Season 4, I was posting video introductions to the stories, but with the way short story narration works on YouTube, I think it's better if I just post stories with no intro at all. So, moving forward, I'll be posting individual stories that I narrate here on the YouTube channel. The thought there is that people generally search up a short story and they just want to get right into it with none of my nonsense attached. So I'll save the intro and the other nonsense for this area, while... The YouTube channel will just be straight-up stories with a plug for the podcast if they want the full Ink and Ash experience like you guys are getting right now. But I bring this up because it'd be a huge help for me if everyone here goes and subscribes to the channel. It'll boost visibility, it'll help me to show up in search results, and a few of you have subscribed already, for which I thank you very much. And if everyone here goes and subscribes, I would really, really appreciate it. Likes and comments would be great, too. I'd love to know what you think and get your feedback. But even without the likes and comments, subscribing is a big help. So, on to this week's stories. First, we've got Soldier's Home by Ernest Hemingway. Hemingway is obviously a big name in literature, and some of his work is just entering the public domain in 2021 and 2022, so this is the first time I've been able to feature him. I say it every time, especially with these bigger names like M.R. James last week and now Hemingway, if this was a podcast about authors, I'd give a much bigger and more detailed history of Hemingway, but in the interest of time and moving to the actual story, this will necessarily be a cursory introduction. Ernest Hemingway was born in July of 1899 in Oak Park, Illinois. His father was a physician, and his mother was a locally well-known musician. As a young man, Hemingway was a high school athlete, competing in boxing, track and field, water polo, and football. You don't see boxing in high school too much these days. But anyway, he enjoyed outdoor adventures with his father, which would inform his lifestyle into adulthood. Hemingway started his writing career, as many writers have, in that he worked as a journalist out of high school for the Kansas City Star. He only stayed at the Star for six months, after which he attempted to enlist in the U.S. Army. His enlistment was rejected due to poor eyesight, and he instead went to work for the Red Cross as an ambulance driver on the Italian front during World War I. Now, this lasted only two months before he was seriously injured and spent six months in the hospital recovering before being sent home. Hemingway was still only 18 at this time. His experience in the war formed the basis of his novel A Farewell to Arms, and one would imagine that his return home from Italy informed today's story, Soldier's Home. Hemingway would experience other scenes of battle as well, though this time as a journalist. He covered the Spanish Civil War, which inspired his novel For Whom the Bell Tolls, and he was with the Allied troops for the Normandy invasion and the liberation of Paris in World War II. Hemingway led a turbulent personal life. 
being married four times in succession. He married Hadley Richardson in 1921, divorced her in 1927, married Pauline Pfeiffer in the same year, and they divorced in 1940. Also in 1940, he married Martha Gellhorn, whom he divorced in 1945, and in that same year he married Mary Welsh, to whom he stayed married until his death in 1961. Of course, there's a lot more to that story than the dates themselves, but we're not going to get into that right now. Hemingway's hard lifestyle, including injuries from several accidents over the course of his life, including two plane crashes on successive days, and several years of heavy drinking led to a deteriorated condition as he neared the end of his life. He was treated for depression and addiction, including being subjected to several rounds of the electroshock therapy that was routine at the time. He died in 1961 by his own hand, much like his father and two of his siblings. And on that note, folks, if you are struggling or dealing with depression or suicidal thoughts, please seek help. You are not alone, and your life is worth living. If you need help, dial 988 on your phone and it will connect you with the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. Now, there's no good transition from the subject of Hemingway's death, but I'll move on now to his writing style and his resume. So despite only working at the Kansas City Star for six months, he used their style guide as a foundation for his writing. That style guide says to use short sentences, use short first paragraphs, use vigorous English, be positive, not negative. Now, Hemingway uses a very lean style. His prose is short and to the point, without a lot of flowery language, for lack of a better term, and you'll hear that in today's story. His first published work was a collection entitled, get this, Three Stories and Ten Poems. The name says it all, folks. The collection was published privately in 1923 with a run of 300 copies in Paris. Hemingway's other works include ten novels, three of which were published posthumously. His most well-known novels are The Sun Also Rises, A Farewell to Arms, For Whom the Bell Tolls, and The Old Man in the Sea. He also published nine nonfiction works, seven of which were published posthumously, and 19 short story collections, 12 of which were published after his death. There have also been over 30 film and television adaptations of Hemingway's work. He also won the Pulitzer Prize for The Old Man in the Sea in 1953 and the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1954. Today's story, Soldier's Home, was part of Hemingway's collection called In Our Time, which was published in 1924. Our second story today, A Horseman in the Sky, was written by Ambrose Bierce and published on April 14, 1889 in The Examiner, which would later be known as The San Francisco Examiner. Now, I talked about Ambrose Bierce all the way back in Season 1, Episode 5, when we presented The Damned Thing and The Man and the Snake, and go check that one out if you haven't heard it yet. Bierce is an interesting guy. We also talked about The San Francisco Examiner back in Episode 8 of Season 3, while presenting another beer story, an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. So, authors and stories have been introduced, and now that you know what's coming, here is today's feature presentation. Soldier's Home by Ernest Hemingway Krabs went to the war from a Methodist college in Kansas. There is a picture which shows him among his fraternity brothers, all of them wearing exactly the same height and style of collar. He enlisted in the Marines in 1917 and did not return to the United States until the 2nd Division returned from the Rhine in the summer of 1919. There is a picture which shows him on the Rhine with two German girls and another corporal. 
Krebs and the corporal look too big from their uniforms. The German girls are not beautiful. The Rhine does not show in the picture. By the time Krebs returned to his home in Oklahoma, the greeting of heroes was over. He came back much too late. The men from the town who had been drafted had all been welcomed elaborately on their return. There had been a great deal of hysteria. Now the reaction had set in. People seemed to think it was rather ridiculous for Krebs to be getting back so late, years after the war was over. At first Krebs, who had been at the Bello Wood, Soissons, the Champagne, saint Miel, and the Argonne, did not want to talk about the war at all. Later he felt the need to talk, but no one wanted to hear about it. His town had heard too many atrocity stories to be thrilled by actualities. Krebs found that to be listened to at all he had to lie, and after he had done this twice he too had a reaction against the war and against talking about it. A distaste for everything that had happened to him in the war set in because of the lies he had told. All of the times that had been able to make him feel cool and clear inside himself when he thought of them, the time so long back when he had done the one thing, the only thing for a man to do, easily and naturally, when he might have done something else, now lost their cool, valuable quality, and then were lost themselves. His lies were quite unimportant lies, and consisted in attributing to himself things that other men had seen, or done, or heard of, and stating as facts certain apocryphal incidents familiar to all soldiers. Even his lies were not sensational at the pool room. His acquaintances, who had heard detailed accounts of German women found chained to machine guns in the Argonne Forest, and who could not comprehend, or were barred by their patriotism from interest in, any German machine gunners who were not chained, were not thrilled by his stories. Krebs acquired the nausea in regard to experience that is the result of untruth or exaggeration, and when he occasionally met another man who had really been a soldier, they talked a few minutes in the dressing room at a dance he fell into the easy pose of an old soldier among other soldiers, that he had been badly, sickeningly frightened all the time. In this way he lost everything. During this time it was late summer. He was sleeping late in bed, getting up to walk down to the library to get a book, eating lunch at home, reading on the front porch until he became bored, and then walking down through town to spend the hottest hours of the day in the cool dark of the pool room. He loved to play pool. In the evening, he practiced on his clarinet, strolled downtown, read, and went to bed. He was still a hero to his two young sisters. His mother would have given him breakfast in bed if he had wanted it. She often came in when he was in bed and asked him to tell her about the war, but her attention always wandered. His father was noncommittal. Before Krebs went away to the war, he had never been allowed to drive the family motor car. His father was in the real estate business and always wanted the car to be at his command when he required it to take clients out to the country to show them a piece of farm property. The car always stood outside the first National Bank building where his father had an office on the second floor. Now, after the war, it was still the same car. Nothing was changed in the town, except that the young girls had grown up but they lived in such a complicated world of already defined alliances and shifting feuds that Krebs did not feel the energy or the courage to break into it. He liked to look at them, though. There were so many good-looking young girls. Most of them had their hair cut short. When he went away, only little girls wore their hair like that, or girls that were fast. They all wore sweaters and shirtwaists with round Dutch collars. It was a pattern. He liked to look at them from the front porch as they walked on the other side of the street. He liked to watch them walking under the shade of trees. He liked the round Dutch collars above their sweaters. He liked their silk stockings and flat shoes. He liked their bobbed hair and the way they walked. 
When he was in town, their appeal to him was not very strong. He did not like them when he saw them in Greek's ice cream parlor. He did not want them themselves, really. They were too complicated. There was something else. Vaguely, he wanted a girl, but he did not want to have to work to get her. He would have liked to have a girl, but he did not want to have to spend a long time getting her. He did not want to get into the intrigue and the politics. He did not want to have to do any courting. He did not want to tell any more lies. It wasn't worth it. He did not want any consequences. He did not want any consequences ever again. He wanted to live along without consequences. Besides, he did not really need a girl. The army had taught him that. It was all right to pose as though you had to have a girl. Nearly everybody did that, but it wasn't true. You did not need a girl. That was the funny thing. First a fellow boasted how girls mean nothing to him, that he never thought of them, that they could not touch him. Then a fellow boasted that he could not get along without girls, that he had to have them all the time, that he could not go to sleep without them. That was all a lie. It was all a lie both ways. You did not need a girl unless you thought about them. He learned that in the army. Then, sooner or later, you always got one. When you were really ripe for a girl, you always got one. You did not have to think about it. Sooner or later, it would come. He had learned that in the army. Now, he would have liked a girl if she had come to him and not wanted to talk. But here at home, it was all too complicated. He knew he could never get through it all again. It was not worth the trouble. That was a thing about French girls and German girls. There was not all this talking. You couldn't talk much, and you didn't need to talk. It was simple, and you were friends. He thought about France, and then he began to think about Germany. On the whole, he had liked Germany better. He did not want to leave Germany. He did not want to come home. Still, he had come home. He sat on the front porch. He liked the girls that were walking along the other side of the street. He liked to look at them much better than the French girls or the German girls, but the world they were in was not the world he was in. He would have liked to have one of them, but it was not worth it. They were such a nice pattern. He liked the pattern. It was exciting, but he would not go through all the talking. He did not want one badly enough. He liked to look at them all, though. It was not worth it. Not now, when things were getting good again. He sat there on the porch reading a book on the war. It was a history, and he was reading all about the engagements he had been in. It was the most interesting reading he had ever done. He wished there were more maps. He looked forward with a good feeling to reading all the really good histories when they would all come out with detail maps. Now he was really learning about the war. He had been a good soldier. That made a difference. One morning, after he had been home about a month, his mother came into his bedroom and sat on the bed. She smoothed her apron. "'I had a talk with your father last night, Harold,' she said, "'and he is willing for you to take the car out in the evenings.' "'Yeah,' said Graves, who was not fully awake. "'Take the car out, yeah?' "'Yes. Your father has felt for quite some time that you should be able to take the car out in the evenings whenever you wished, but we only talked it over last night.' "'Yeah, I'll bet you made him,' Graves said. No, it was your father's suggestion that we talk the matter over. Yeah, I'll bet you made him. Graves sat up in bed. Will you come down to breakfast, Harold? His mother said. As soon as I get my clothes on, Graves said. His mother went out of the room, and he could hear her frying something downstairs while he washed, shaved, and dressed to go down into the dining room for breakfast. While he was eating breakfast, his sister brought in the mail. Well, Hare, she said, you old sleepyhead, what do you ever get up for? Graves looked at her. He liked her. She was his best sister. "'Have you got the paper?' he asked. 
She handed him the Kansas City Star, and he shucked off its brown wrapper and opened it to the sporting page. He folded the star open and propped it against the water pitcher with a cereal dish to steady it so he could read while he ate. Harold, his mother stood in the kitchen doorway, Harold, please don't muss up the paper. Your father can't read his star if it's been mussed. I won't muss it, Grabes said. His sister sat down at the table and watched him while he read. We're playing indoor over at the school this afternoon, she said. I'm going to pitch. Good, said Grabes. How's the old wing? I can pitch better than lots of the boys. I tell them all you taught me. The other girls aren't much good. Yeah, said Grabes. I tell them all you're my beau. Aren't you my beau, Hare? You bet. Couldn't your brother really be your beau just because he's your brother? I don't know. Sure you know. Couldn't you be my beau, Hare, if I was old enough and you wanted to? Sure. You're my girl now. Am I really your girl? Sure. Do you love me? Uh-huh. Will you love me always? Sure. Will you come over and watch me play indoor? Maybe. Aw, oh, Hare, you don't love me. If you loved me, you'd want to come over and watch me play indoor. Kreb's mother came to the dining room from the kitchen. She carried a plate with two fried eggs and some crisp bacon on it and a plate of buckwheat cakes. You run along, Helen, she said. I want to talk to Harold. She put the eggs and bacon down in front of him and brought in a jug of maple syrup for the buckwheat cakes. Then she sat down across the table from Krebs. I wish you'd put the paper down a minute, Harold, she said. Krebs took the paper and folded it. Have you decided what you're going to do yet, Harold? His mother said, taking off her glasses. No, said Krebs. Don't you think it's about time? His mother did not say this in a mean way. She seemed worried. I hadn't thought about it, Krebs said. God has some work for everyone to do, his mother said. There can be no idle hands in his kingdom. I'm not in his kingdom, Krebs said. We are all of us in his kingdom. Krebs felt embarrassed and resentful, as always. I've worried about you so much, Harold, his mother went on. I know the temptations you must have been exposed to. I know how weak men are. I know what your own dear grandfather, my own father, told us about the Civil War, and I have prayed for you. I pray for you all day long, Harold. Krebs looked at the bacon fat hardening on his plate. Your father is worried, too, his mother went on. He thinks you've lost your ambition, that you haven't got a definite aim in life. Charlie Simmons, who is just your age, has a good job and is going to be married. The boys are all settling down. They're all determined to get somewhere. You can see that boys like Charlie Simmons are on their way to really being a credit to the community. Cribb said nothing. Don't look that way, Harold, his mother said. You know we love you, and I wanted to tell you for your own good how matters stand. Your father does not want to hamper your freedom. He thinks you should be allowed to drive the car. If you want to take some of the nice girls out riding with you, we're only too pleased. We want you to enjoy yourself. But you are going to have to settle down to work, Harold. Your father doesn't care what you start in at. All work is honorable, as he says. But you've got to make a start at something. He asked me to speak to you this morning, and then you can stop and see him at the office. Is that all? Cribb said. Yes. Don't you love your mother, dear boy? No, Cribb said. His mother looked at him across the table. Her eyes were shiny. She started crying. I don't love anybody, Cribb said. It wasn't any good. He couldn't tell her. He couldn't make her see it. It was silly to have said it. He'd only hurt her. He went over and took hold of her arm. She was crying with her head in her hands. I didn't mean it, he said. I was just 
angry at something. I, I didn't mean I didn't love you. His mother went on crying. Krabs put his arm on her shoulder. Can't you believe me, mother? His mother shook her head. Please, please, mother, please believe me. All right, his mother said chokily. She looked up at him. I believe you, Harold. Krabs kissed her hair. She put her face up to him. I'm your mother, she said. I held you next to my heart when you were a tiny baby. Krebs felt sick and vaguely nauseated. I know, Mommy, he said. I'll try and be a good boy for you. Would you kneel and pray with me, Harold? His mother asked. They knelt down beside the dining room table and Krebs's mother prayed. Now you pray, Harold. I can't, Krebs said. Try, Harold. I can't. Do you want me to pray for you? Yes. So his mother prayed for him, and they stood up, and Krebs kissed his mother and went out of the house. He had tried so to keep his life from being complicated. Still, none of it had touched him. He had felt sorry for his mother, and she had made him lie. He would go to Kansas City and get a job, and she would feel all right about it. There would be one more scene, maybe, before he got away. He would not go down to his father's office. He would miss that one. He wanted his life to go smoothly. It had just gotten going that way. Well, that was all over now anyway. He would go over to the schoolyard and watch Helen play indoor baseball. A Horseman in the Sky by Ambrose Bierce 1. One sunny afternoon in the autumn of the year 1861, a soldier lay in a clump of laurel by the side of a road in western Virginia. He lay at full length upon his stomach, his feet resting upon the toes, his head upon the left forearm. His extended right hand loosely grasped his rifle, but for the somewhat methodical disposition of his limbs and a slight rhythmic movement of the cartridge box at the back of his belt, he might have been thought to be dead. He was asleep, at his post of duty. But if detected, he would be dead shortly afterward, death being the just and legal penalty of his crime. The clump of laurel in which the criminal lay was in the angle of a road which, after ascending southward, a steep acclivity to that point turned sharply to the west, running along the summit for perhaps one hundred yards. There it turned southward again and went zigzagging downward through the forest. At the salient of that second angle was a large flat rock jutting out northward, overlooking the deep valley from which the road ascended. The rock capped off a high cliff. A stone dropped from its outer edge would have fallen sheer downward one thousand feet to the tops of the pines. The angle where the soldier lay was on another spur of the same cliff. Had he been awake, he would have commanded a view not only of the short arm of the road and the jutting rock, but of the entire profile of the cliff below it. It might well have made him giddy to look. The country was wooded everywhere, except at the bottom of the valley to the northward, where there was a small natural meadow, through which flowed a stream scarcely visible from the valley's rim. This open ground looked hardly larger than an ordinary dooryard, but was really several acres in extent. Its green was more than that of the enclosing forest. Away beyond it rose a line of giant cliffs, similar to those upon which we are supposed to stand in our survey of the savage scene, 
and through which the road had somehow made its climb to the summit. The configuration of the valley indeed was such that from this point of observation it seemed entirely shut in, and one could have but wondered how the road which found a way out of it had found a way into it, and whence came and whither went the waters of the stream that parted the meadow more than a thousand feet below. No country is so wild and difficult but men will make it a theater of war, concealed in the forest at the bottom of that military rat-trap, in which half a hundred men in possession of the exits might have starved an army to submission, lay five regiments of Federal infantry. They had marched all the previous day and night, and were resting. At nightfall, they would take to the road again, climb to the place where their unfaithful sentinel now slept, and, descending the other slope of the ridge, fall upon a camp of the enemy at about midnight. Their hope was to surprise it, for the road led to the rear of it. In case of failure, their position would be perilous in the extreme, and fail they most surely would, should accident or vigilance surprise the enemy of the movement. 2. The sleeping sentinel in the clump of laurel was a young Virginian named Carter Druce. He was the son of wealthy parents, an only child, and had known such ease and cultivation and high living as wealth and taste were able to command in the mountain country of western Virginia. His home was but a few miles from where he now lay. One morning he had risen from the breakfast table and said, quietly but gravely, Father, a Union regiment has arrived at Grafton. I am going to join it. The father lifted his leonine head, looked at the son a moment in silence, and replied, Well, go, sir, and whatever may occur, do what you conceive to be your duty. Virginia, to which you are a traitor, must get on without you. Should we both live to the end of the war, we will speak further of this matter. Your mother, as the physician has informed you, is in a most critical condition. At the best, she cannot be with us longer than a few weeks, but that time is precious. It would be better not to disturb her. So Carter Druce, bowing reverently to his father, who returned the salute with a stately courtesy that masked a breaking heart, left the home of his childhood to go soldiering. By conscience and courage, by deeds of devotion and daring, he soon commended himself to his fellows and his officers, and it was to these qualities, and to some knowledge of the country, that he owed his selection for his present perilous duty at the extreme outpost. Nevertheless, fatigue had been stronger than resolution, and he had fallen asleep. What good or bad angel came in a dream to rouse him from his state of crime, who shall say? Without a movement, without a sound, in the profound silence and the languor of the late afternoon, some invisible messenger of fate, touched with unsealing finger the eyes of his consciousness, whispered into the ear of his spirit the mysterious awakening word which no human lips ever have spoken, no human memory ever has recalled. He quietly raised his forehead from his arm and looked between the masking stems of the laurels, instinctively closing his right hand about the stock of the rifle. His first feeling was a keen artistic delight. On a colossal pedestal, the cliff, motionless at the extreme edge of the capping rock and sharply outlined against the sky, was an equestrian statue of impressive dignity. The figure of the man sat the figure of the horse, straight and soldierly, but with the repose of a Grecian god carved in the marble, which limits the suggestion of activity. The gray costume harmonized with its aerial background. The metal of accoutrement and caparison was softened and subdued by the shadow. The animal's skin had no points of high light. A carbine, strikingly foreshortened, lay across the pommel of the saddle, kept in place by the right hand grasping it at the grip. The left hand, holding the bridle rein, was invisible. 
In silhouette against the sky, the profile of the horse was cut with the sharpness of a cameo. It looked across the heights of air to the confronting cliffs beyond. The face of the rider turned away slightly, showed only an outline of temple and beard. He was looking downward to the bottom of the valley. Magnified by its lift against the sky and by the soldier's testifying sense of the formidableness of a near enemy, the group appeared of heroic, almost colossal, size. For an instant, Druce had a strange, half-defined feeling that he had slept to the end of the war and was looking upon a noble work of art, reared upon that eminence to commemorate the deeds of an heroic past of which he had been an inglorious part. The feeling was dispelled by a slight movement of the group. The horse, without moving its feet, had drawn its body slightly backward from the verge. The man remained immobile as before. Broad awake and keenly alive to the significance of the situation, Druce now brought the butt of his rifle against his cheek by cautiously pushing the barrel forward through the bushes, cocked the piece, and glancing through the sights covered a vital spot of the horseman's breast. A touch upon the trigger and all would have been well with Carter Druce. At that instant, the horseman turned his head and looked in the direction of his concealed foeman, seemed to look into his very face, into his eyes, into his brave, compassionate heart. Is it then so terrible to kill an enemy in war, an enemy who has surprised the secret vital to the safety of oneself and comrades, an enemy more formidable for his knowledge than all his army for its numbers? Carter Druce grew pale. He shook in every limb, turned faint, and saw the statuesque group before him as black figures, rising, falling, moving unsteadily in arcs of circles in a fiery sky. His hand fell away from his weapon. His head slowly dropped until his face rested on the leaves in which he lay. This courageous gentleman and hardy soldier was near swooning from intensity of emotion. It was not for long. In another moment his face was raised from the earth. His hands resumed their places on the rifle. His forefinger sought the trigger. Mind, heart, and eyes were clear. Conscience and reason sound. He could not hope to capture that enemy. To alarm him would but send him dashing to his camp with his fatal news. The duty of the soldier was plain. The man must be shot dead from ambush, without warning, without a moment's spiritual preparation, with never so much as an unspoken prayer he must be sent to his account. But no, there is a hope. He may have discovered nothing. Perhaps he is but admiring the sublimity of the landscape. If permitted, he may turn and ride carelessly away in the direction whence he came. Surely it'll be possible to judge at the instant of his withdrawing whether he knows. It may well be that his fixity of attention... Druce turned his head and looked through the deeps of air downward, as from the surface to the bottom of a translucent sea. He saw, creeping across the green meadow, a sinuous line of figures of men and horses. Some foolish commander was permitting the soldiers of his escort to water their beasts in the open, in plain view from a dozen summits. Druce withdrew his eyes from the valley and fixed them again upon the group of man and horse in the sky, and again it was through the sights of his rifle. But this time his aim was at the horse. In his memory, as if they were a divine mandate, rang the words of his father at their parting, Whatever may occur, do what you conceive to be your duty. He was calm now. His teeth were firmly but not rigidly closed. His nerves were as tranquil as a sleeping babe's. Not a tremor affected any muscle of his body. His breathing, until suspended in the act of taking aim, was regular and slow. Duty had conquered. The spirit had said to the body, Peace, 
Be still. He fired. Three. An officer of the Federal Force, who in a spirit of adventure or in quest of knowledge had left the hidden bivouac in the valley and with aimless feet had made his way to the lower edge of a small open space near the foot of the cliff, was considering what he had to gain by pushing his exploration further. At a distance of a quarter mile before him, but apparently at a stone's throw, rose from its fringe of pines the gigantic face of rock, towering to so great a height above him that it made him giddy to look up to where its edge cut a sharp, rugged line against the sky. It presented a clean, vertical profile against the background of blue sky to a point half the way down and of distant hills hardly less blue, thence to the tops of the trees at its base. Lifting his eyes to the dizzy altitude of its summit, the officer saw an astonishing sight. A man on horseback, riding down into the valley through the air. Straight upright sat the rider, in military fashion, with a firm seat in the saddle, a strong clutch upon the rein to hold his charger from too impetuous a plunge. From his bare head his long hair streamed upward, waving like a plume. His hands were concealed in the cloud of the horse's lifted mane. The animal's body was as level as if every hoofstroke encountered the resistant earth. Its motions were those of a wild gallop, but even as the officer looked, they ceased, with all the legs thrown sharply forward, as in the act of alighting from a leap. But this was a flight. Filled with amazement and terror by this apparition of a horseman in the sky, half believing himself the chosen scribe of some new apocalypse, the officer was overcome by the intensity of his emotions. His legs failed him and he fell. Almost at the same instant, he heard a crashing sound in the trees, a sound that died without an echo and all was still. The officer rose to his feet, trembling. The familiar sensation of an abraded shin recalled his dazed faculties. Pulling himself together, he ran rapidly, obliquely, away from the cliff to a point distant from its foot. Thereabout he expected to find his man, and thereabout he naturally failed. In the fleeting instant of his vision, his imagination had been so wrought upon by the apparent grace and ease and intention of the marvelous performance that it did not occur to him that the line of march of aerial cavalry is directly downward, and that he could find the objects of his search at the very foot of the cliff. A half hour later he returned to camp. This officer was a wise man. He knew better than to tell an incredible truth. He said nothing of what he had seen. But when the commander asked him if in his scout he had learned anything of advantage to the expedition, he answered, Yes, sir, there is no road leading down into this valley from the southward. The commander, knowing better, smiled. 4. After firing his shot, Private Carter Druce reloaded his rifle and resumed his watch. Ten minutes had hardly passed when a Federal sergeant crept cautiously to him on hands and knees. Druce neither turned his head nor looked at him, but lay without motion or sign of recognition. "'Did you fire?' the sergeant whispered. "'Yes.' "'At what?' "'A horse. It was standing on yonder rock, pretty far out. You see, it is no longer there. It went over the cliff.' The man's face was white, but he showed no other sign of emotion. Having answered, he turned away his eyes and said no more. The sergeant did not understand. See here, Truce, he said after a moment's silence. It's no use making a mystery. I order you to report. Was there anybody on the horse? Yes. Well? My father. The sergeant rose to his feet and walked away. Good God, he said.
Well, folks, I don't have too much to add after today's stories other than to say Happy Veterans Day and thank you to all those who have served and continue to serve their countries. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Ink and Ash for all things Ink and Ash, including to submit your own story or a story suggestion, you can visit inkandashpod.com. Next time, I'm going to have a story for you about a prospector who finds what he's looking for and then some. Until then, this has been Ink and Ash. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.